Thanks so much for joining us here on the Rivers Church Podcast. We see a church full of passionate people who reach the unchurched with the gospel of Jesus. Our heart is to equip people to love, live, and lead in God's kingdom. We hope you enjoy today's message and pray that it encourages you to be all that God has destined you to be. If you need anything, please feel free to reach out to us and check us out on our website at riverschurch.co. That's riverschurch.co. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for your word. It divides bone and marrow, soul and spirit. Even if we sense that we don't want to let your word in, we can't help but let your word in. That's the prophetic word you gave me this morning, that you would arrest us with your presence, that you would interrupt our every day so that we could be transformed and experience the life that you have always wanted to give us. May we receive that today with an open heart and a spirit of reception of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Welcome. You may have a seat. Welcome online if you're joining us. We are glad that you're here. Guys, I am going to dive right in. My name is Amy. I'm a little crazy, Um, but I think that's partly why you're here is you're crazy too. And maybe you're online because you're crazy too. Um, But Man, I get to talk to you guys a little bit about suffering and the role that suffering plays in our freedom process. And I know we've been in this freedom process and it's really just the beginning. Everything that we're doing in these sermon series the last three weeks leading up to our reset retreat is preparing you to receive your freedom. I feel like you all should get a diploma when you're done with this and you've completed the reset uh, retreat that says you are free. And maybe it won't be the kind of diploma that you can hang on a wall, but something that you could hang on your hearts. Uh, Now, that kind of freedom is amazing. So we're talking about the role that suffering plays in our freedom process. It's called, a sermon today is called Hug the Cactus. If you live in Arizona, you know that you don't hug a cactus. That's just stupid. But you also probably have had cactus needles in your arm before. Anyone? Yeah, I did a dumb thing a couple months ago, and I was cutting down a cactus, a one with those like really hairy, like millions of needles, get stuck, and it fell on my arm. Yeah, it took me weeks to try and get all the needles out. It was awful. And then finally, a friend of mine was like, hey, have you tried waxing? You're all looking at me like, yes. I was like, no. And so I go and I buy wax and I literally waxed my waxed the needles off my arm. It was like my proudest moment of my whole entire life. <laughs> Anyways, don't hug a cactus in real life, but hug a cactus means to participate in the role suffering has in your freedom process. We all come to this crossroads, right? The crossroads of suffering, where we decide, am I gonna let God into this or am I gonna plug into my soul? And that was last week's sermon. We like to unplug from God and to plug into our soul. And we'll talk a little bit about that. That's turning inwards, beginning to agree with what the enemy says about us and what he wants to do in our lives. And really, this is a critical juncture that we come to where we are deciding, man, am I going to let God into this suffering and let him create me into what he has called me to be? Because suffering really refines us and defines us. And we're going to talk about that. So I don't know if you're there right now. Um, And I want to be sensitive to that. But I also want to say this is an opportunity for you to let God do something really powerful in your suffering. And Jesus is such a great example of suffering. Like time and time again, we watch him suffer. And we honestly see him suffering on the cross. But I want to talk about the suffering that he felt and the rejection that he felt from other people. Did you know that he had way more than just the 12 people following him as his disciples? He had a couple hundred people. And really, one day he had a teaching that caused half the people to leave. I don't know if you can imagine your, I know, right? In your life, if half the people you counted on that you thought loved you walked away, what kind of rejection would that be? And so Jesus knows suffering. And in this moment when he's teaching, he's actually talking about communion. And he's like, hey, you're going to eat my body and you're going to drink my blood. And 
I'm sure half of them were like, uh, that's cannibalism and Silence of the Lambs have not come out yet. So we're not going to talk about that. I hate that movie, by the way. It's so disgusting. But I've never watched it. I just hate it. So <laughs> just preface. Just pre I'm too scared to watch movies like that. Anyways, he begins to teach them about communion. And what is he saying? He's saying, I want you to become just like me. I want you to take up your cross and follow me. And half of those people said, ooh, that's not what I came for. And they said, the cost is too great. I don't want to suffer. And they walked away. That's why half the people walked away. And, and honestly, we're at the same crossroads today as they were. Are we going to choose Jesus and possibly suffer for him? Or are we going to say, uh, I was in this for the freedom. I was in this for the pro uh, prosperity. I'm not in this to suffer. And we're, we're right there standing at the precipice. And can I just say, just from life experience, because I have not been saved my entire life. I was not raised in a Christian church. Suffering happens to all people. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. And I know from personal experience that suffering with God is a lot better than suffering without him. So can I just tell you, you're going to suffer. And, and that that's normal. And I'm jumping ahead of myself. But I want to talk about um, Jesus' suffering. Continue to talk about that and illustrate that in the way of this woman with the alabaster jar. There's this woman in the Bible that's talked about in all four Gospels. And she's not talked about because of her adultery, which I feel like most women in Jesus' times, that's what they were like talked about for. She is talked about for what she did. She did a prophetic act to Christ. And it ministered to him so much that he said, in everywhere that the gospel is preached, I want her story to be told. And basically, he's talking to his 12 disciples, and he's telling them, and he's told everybody in parables, like, I'm going to die. And he said this in parables. And now it's getting closer to his death. So he's like, hey, you're not really getting it. And most of those 12 disciples were men. I hate to break it to you, but men have a slower time understanding some things. You can laugh about that, right? And so now Jesus is plainly saying, I'm going to die. And they're still not getting it. But this woman understands. She's hearing what he's saying. And she goes and grabs her alabaster jar. And if you don't know what that is, I'm going to explain it to you. An alabaster jar, it has no opening. In order to get whatever's inside of it out, you have to break it. Um, it's not like a perfume bottle, but it is kind of. You just have to break it. It has pure nard in it, uh, which is spices and oils that are very expensive. In fact, they're so expensive, it's a year's worth of wages. So the disciples actually get upset at her for doing this. She goes and gets this jar and prophetically breaks it and anoints Jesus, pours it over him. What she didn't realize is that when he said he was dying and she took him at his word, she didn't realize that he would go to the cross and then there would be not enough time to anoint his body with oil when he was buried and that she was actually the one to anoint his body with oil. And Jesus was so moved. I, I think this moves me too sometimes. Jesus was so moved by this prophetic act. He was like, everyone will know what you have done for me. And I think it, we can learn so much from this, right? You look at the jar and what it represents, and it, it probably represented Jesus's body being broken. And then the oil represents the Holy Spirit being released on this earth. But what does it represent for us? Because I think the jar actually represents our body and our soul and that we've got the Spirit of God. If you've given your life to Christ and you've made him Lord of your life, you have the Spirit of God inside of you. And that, that part of us needs to be broken in order for the Spirit of God to come out. But let's be honest, in the Christian world, what do we see? We see perfect people, perfect hair, on the stage, with a microphone, and we think, well, that jar looks really pretty. Maybe my jar should look that pretty. And we start getting so focused on the jar, our behaviors, how we look on the outside, and we start putting together and even like making this on social media, everywhere, like our outward appearance is what matters most. When really what gives the jar value isn't the jar itself, but what it carries. What's inside of it is priceless. 
And so this represents us today on our freedom journey, that part of freedom is being broken and letting something be released inside of you. I don't want to scare you, but today is about brokenness. And maybe there's something inside of you that needs to be released that has never been released before. And I know this is going to be a serious topic, but I'm going to try and be a little bit funny in it. Can we do that? Not just funny looking, but be kind of funny. So, so just give me a good laugh for right now. Awesome. Awesome. I just needed to know that you could laugh. Does anybody have a good guttural laugh? Oh, that was good. Thank you so much. Okay. So today is about what's inside of us getting released, right? And the one thing that I think is important for us to remember is that sometimes we don't want to get to the end of our life and think people have only come in contact with the jar, but they have never come in contact with the spirit of the living God inside of me. And that's something that we've got to contemplate and make it worth it to go on this journey. So are you ready to go on this journey with me? Okay, scattered throughout the sermon and in your notes, um, if you're a note taker, is going to be seven different things to navigate suffering. And I'm just going to give you a heads up. I'm going to get you today. I'm going to get you real good. I'm going to get you right where it hurts. And it's because I love you. Is that okay? Okay. So number, number one is understand why you are suffering. And maybe you're in here and you're like, Amy, if I knew why I was suffering, I wouldn't be here. Or if I knew why I was suffering, I wouldn't need to be talking about this. Or I'd have life figured out. And so I think it's important for us to understand why we're suffering. And there's some solid biblical truths that can help us wrap our brains around suffering. Many times we don't understand our suffering because we prefer to remain in a victim state. So hold on to that. Uh, if you don't understand your suffering, that may be an indicator that you are victimizing yourself. Just saying. Okay, so there's four things um, to help us understand our suffering, and we can filter them through. And the first one is sin by us. Dude, we just mess up. We mess up, right? And this is where we want to stay in the victim area, but our choices sometimes cause the very trouble that we're in. It's, right, if I'm at work and I start gossiping about Janice and then all of a sudden Janice is mad at me and all these things are going on at work that create a toxic environment, but really it's because I was gossiping about Janice. I created the toxic environment, right? And so I can go to church and be like, hey, pray for me, these toxic people in this toxic environment. Or you could just stop gossiping and that would help your situation a lot. This is the law of sowing and reaping, right? Um, it's supposed to be that if I sow something, I reap it back because God wants to open our eyes to what we're doing. So right, number one, sin by us. Number two is sin by other people. We, I'm not worried about us figuring this out because we know how to know when somebody else is sinning. That, that we're really good about. But I do think that it's important for us to know the difference between indirect and direct effects from people sinning against us, right? Direct effects are like, hey, abuse, verbal abuse, manipulation, gossip, slander, being stole from, those are directed at us. But then there's also like the times when we become collateral damage, maybe the children in a divorce situation, Maybe you're at a job where you have someone doing something unlawful or your boss doing something that is illegal that causes the, the corporation to shut down, which causes you to lose your job, or which is hardest for me to say, and we've seen this in the church, and we'll talk about it later, where people's sin in leadership causes major hardship within the church, if not the church shutting down. Right? This is collateral damage. The closer you are to somebody that has a sin, the more effect you're going to have from it. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean that it's your fault. And then there's this one, which is sin by both people, which is more often the case than not. Uh, but we don't like to own our piece of the pie. Isn't that funny? Because like when pie's in the room, I'm looking at that pie and I'm like, how big of a slice am I going to get? But when I'm talking about whether I've done something wrong or not, I'm like, oh, only 5% of that pie is actually mine. Like the 95% is yours, right? But if we don't own our piece of a pie, we are going to relive it. The example of this is in relationships. If I get a divorce and I think that marrying a new person is going to change that, 
Uh, it's, I'm just going to bring that baggage over to that relationship unless I own my piece of the pie, right? Maybe your spouse was 80% of the pie and that's fine. You know, sometimes divorce needs to happen. Even Jesus said, if adultery is committed, that divorce is safe. But maybe there's a piece of the pie that you can own to make sure you don't bring that over to the new relationship. Amen. You guys are hearing that? Own your piece of the pie so you don't end up reliving it. And then there's number four. Let's be real. Number four just really sucks. I hope I don't get in trouble for saying that by Tyrone. Just so you know, between my husband and I, I am the crasser of the two. (laughs) I talk about poop more than anything. But this just really poops, man. The fallen world, the fallen world. This is just crap that happens to us that nobody, it's nobody's fault. It's the fires in Maui that all of Lahaina is destroyed. It's the roof leak that I have because, man, that part of my roof didn't get repaired because of no one's fault, just bad communication. It's the fact that my dad died and was crushed by a tank when I was nine years old. The fact that I age and have to use aging cream. There's just death and destruction in this world because it is fallen and it is broken. And many times we don't have answers for that, okay? So those are the four reasons. Guys, find out, look at that and say, what is the reason? Because that's gonna really help you. So number one, understand why you're suffering. That's important. Number two, and I love this, Carissa wrote this. I just have to say, I learned so much from Carissa, but I love this. I wanna say it all day. Double check number one, because the truth is we are never more blind than when we're suffering, right? Man, when I'm suffering, I am like victim mentality to the max. It's all these people's faults, right? Um, But the truth is that we need to take off those blinders so we can really know how to deal with this, right? We often want to externalize. We want to point fingers. We want to blame, but we cannot get the right remedy without the right diagnosis. It's just not gonna happen. So you want healing, you gotta do some honest, hard work. And you can't just do that by yourself. I get it. Go to God, say, Holy Spirit, reveal to me what's going on inside of me. But go to a trusted, godly person that hears the voice of God and say, what do you see that I don't see? I don't know why this thought popped in my brain, but I had teenagers living with me, and I do now have teenagers, but not my own teenagers, teenagers that we had adopted. And I remember like hitting my 30s and thinking, boy, I need help. I would come downstairs and everybody look at my outfit. What do you see that I don't see that makes me look old? And they would like fix it, right? And sometimes we need that too, right? What do you see that I don't see? Is my zipper open? Should I not be wearing this anymore? You know, is my eyeliner too dark? I don't know. But we need somebody to help us. And we need to be open to what they might say. Hey, you tend to get offended easily. Hey, you tend not to be teachable. It seems like every time you go to work, you get angry. You know, you need somebody to say those hard things. So double check number one. Number three, look, we're moving fast in this. I told you we had seven points and we're already at number three. Say, good job, Amy. Thank you. Number three. Understand the proper remedy, right? We have to diagnose things correctly so that we have the right cure. It's just the way it is, right? If I cut my arm, I'm not going to go get chemo. That's stupid. If I have cancer, I'm not going to put a Band-Aid on it. Although there are some men in this room that you need to go see the doctor. And I'm just saying, men, you put that off far too long. Women, we're smart. We're like, oh, I got a pain. I don't know how to fix that. And essential oils won't do it. I'm going to go to the doctor, right? So don't always put a Band-Aid on it when you need to go get some help. Do the proper diagnosis. And the reason is because you can actually prolong your suffering with the wrong diagnosis. And I know this really well because a while back ago, I had a little tiny rash on my nose right here, right there. Just a little tiny one. And I went to this young doctor, and he gave me steroid cream. And I put a little of that steroid cream on my face. And let me tell you, my face erupted into an angry dragon, venomous thing from my eye to my chin. I have never had a rash so large. In fact, it hurt so bad, I felt like Job, like I wanted to scratch myself with a broken pot. But I I found a way to put yogurt on it, and it relieved it for a little while. And I finally got into the dermatologist, and he's like, oh, dude, you know why you have this? Because you had a, a, a reaction to the steroid cream. This is literally from the steroid cream. 
right? So you have to have the proper diagnosis or you are going to be in trouble. So we're going to talk about three things, the diagnosis or the remedy for sin by us, for sin by others, and sin by the, or not sin, but like pain from the fallen world. All right, so the remedy for sin by us, and this is where I'm going to hit you. It is going to hurt. Are you ready? Are you ready? Okay, this requires confession and repentance. It just does. It requires confession and repentance, and our instinct, again, is to blame. We don't need anybody shielding us from the consequences of our sin. And we don't need that. And the reason we don't need that is the consequences, the law of sowing and reaping was meant to push us to our knees so that we could go to Jesus, confess and repent and find freedom. And so I would say, if you're that person that's shielding people from their sins, stop doing it. That's stupid. You need to help them get to Jesus, right? And your confession needs to be as public as your sin is. So if it's between me and God, I'm going to have it be, 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 be between me and God. Um, sometimes I'm going to involve Tyrone for accountability. But if my sin was against me and Tyrone, that's going to be between me and Tyrone and God. But if my sin is against my entire family, I'm going to ask for forgiveness from God, and then I'm going to go to my entire family. If that needs to be one by one or in a group, your confession needs to be as public as your sin was, okay? And the purpose is freedom. Number two, sin by others. When we suffer at the hands of other people, we need to enter into a forgiveness and healing process. And this is hard because we think when someone else has done something, it's their job to fix it. But the truth is that you can enter into this healing and this forgiveness process without them ever even being involved. In fact, they may never even come to a place of confession and repentance, but God still has freedom for you through forgiveness and healing. He still has that. And right, the closer the relationship, the more difficult this is going to be, the more painful it's going to be, the longer the journey might be. And can I just say, from personal experience, right, sometimes the journey of forgiveness involves boundaries because trust is earned. The healing process involves good protection and help from others, and that's okay too. That is free, that is from me. Just all, it's all yours from me, okay? The third is uh, the fallen world. What is the remedy for that? We suffer because we live in a broken world, right? I suffered because when I was nine years old, my dad passed away. But does that mean I have to suffer forever? No, because God has healing and he has power for me to adapt to my new reality. And so the, re the remedy is rebuilding your faith. And if you're a believer in here, right, you can, you can kind of say, I'm going to lean on the past faith that I have. But God has new faith muscles that he wants to build inside of you through this new reality, and if you're like me and the suffering that you faced was before salvation, man, I, I wasn't learning to live with God and have faith with, with my dad. I had to learn to live with God and have faith without my, my dad. And that helped me learn how to build faith in my life and build all these new faith muscles. And so for us that have been saved for a really long time, this is where we're going to check out. For us that have just newly been saved, we're like, yeah, I got to build these faith muscles. But for us that have been saved for a long time, we can skip this remedy because we're prideful because we think we know better. But God has new muscles that he wants to build in you, new faith muscles that are coming through your new reality. And this is a lot for me to say because I have faced a lot of suffering in my life and it is easy to look at suffering as something that's being, like something's being robbed from you and to get angry at God. Or you could say, man, God, you are preparing me for a life that is fully dependent on you, that is independent of idols, that is independent of addiction, that is in freedom with you. And this new reality is gonna help me live now like I'm going to live in heaven. Is hearing that? Okay. Unfortunately, sometimes we get confused about what the remedy is and we give the wrong remedy. And I'm telling you right now, I, I told somebody I lived in Germany when I was a little girl. Um, when I was a little girl, I lived in Germany. I had my first pet, a little green parakeet. We took it to the veterinarian. Unfortunately, there was a little language 
barrier there. So we came all home with the little parakeet's medicine, and we were going to give that parakeet its medicine. And sure enough, in the morning, we woke up, and it was just flat out dead in the cage. Just super sad. And if you know me, you know I love birds. But again, right? You have to give the proper remedy. And so if we've sinned, we cannot expect comfort and support. We need to expect to confess and repent and to remove ourselves from the victim stance. And if we've had people sin against us, right? It, I get confession is important, but sometimes we're taking responsibility for that which we didn't do. And I would say most often in abuse, sexual abuse, manipulation, any form of abuse, we take on the part that doesn't belong to us. And that's not the remedy. You did not hurt yourself. Somebody over you hurt you. And we, as the people of God, need to bring love, comfort, and support to that person. And dare I say it, protection It is the place of the church to stand up for the weak and to protect them. And can I just say, like, if you've been abused before and a parental figure or an authority figure never stood up to protect you or believe you, when you're able to provide that for someone else, the healing that happens is insane. Are you guys hearing me? This is a deep word that you need to grasp. If you have ever felt like nobody stuck up for you, your healing is going to be standing up for another. Isn't that beautiful how God works in suffering? Unfortunately, we miss what God has for us in suffering, right? Because we come to Jesus thinking, man, we're going to get favor and provision, and we're going to get all the things that I want. That's what I came to Jesus for. And that's what the Jews came to Jesus for, right? They're like, you're going to free us from the Romans? Let's go. Come on. Right? And some of us are like, what? We're going to get America back for Christianity? Maybe that's not what God came for, but he came to deliver all people. And so what happens is that the crowd thins when he says, you're going to suffer. Because they're like, that's not what I signed up for. I signed up for prosperity and happiness and Disneyland. Maybe it's just me that signed up for Disneyland. And, you know, we read that scripture that Peter wrote, but Peter learned this the hard way. He wrote that letter to the Galatians because he knows he was the ultimate protect you from suffering. In fact, did you know that he literally tried to prevent Jesus from going to the cross? Once he did finally get it that Jesus was dying, he's like, oh, oh, you're going to die? No. No, you're not going to die. You're not going to die. And right, he gets named Simon, then he gets named Peter, and then Jesus names him Satan. (laughs) He says, get behind me, Satan. And he still doesn't get it. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus is getting arrested, right? And he pulls out a sword, and he cuts some guy's ear off. He's like, no, 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 my Jesus is not a suffering Jesus. He's a victorious Jesus. But Jesus' moment was to suffer. And then it goes even further. When we don't want a suffering Jesus, we don't want to suffer. But there is no resurrection without death. And so, so Peter comes to this place where this little girl at the fire is like, hey, do you, are you with him? And he's like, oh, if I say I'm with him, dude, they're going to lynch me too. So nope, I'm not with him. So he denies Christ three times. And what does Peter do? He humiliates himself. He humiliates himself. And the beautiful part about this is that when Peter is finally broken, Jesus has died and rose from the dead and is coming back to the disciples. The first time that he sees Peter is at a fire. And he asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. And three times Peter says, yes, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. And so here's Peter. What changed is he was broken. That jar, that hardness, that perfection, that outer appearance was broken. And now that oil was coming out, that beautiful oil. And and we see it come out in these letters to the Galatians. And if you don't know, dude, Galatians were, mm, they loved to engage in self-gratification, If it was lust, if it was drugs, if it was drunkenness, if it was idolatry, they were in it. 
And he's writing this letter to the Galatians because now these Galatians have come out of that lifestyle of self-gratification of plugging into the soul. And now they're in with Christ. And now that they've come with Christ, they're being persecuted for serving him. They're being hurt, beaten, neglected, all of those things. And this is what Peter says to them in 1 Peter 4.12. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you are going through as if something strange was happening to you. Gosh, shouldn't you know? I mean, Peter, yeah, anyways, Peter learned from the school of hard knocks, okay? As if something strange was happening to you. Instead, be very glad for these trials make, your part, make you partners with Christ in his suffering so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to the world. Guys, suffering is normal. Jesus says it himself. In this world, you'll face trouble, but take heart for I have overcome the world. I mean, just read the New Testament. There's persecution, slander, betrayal, false accusation, rejection, temptations, beating, satanic opposition, trials, and affliction. Why would we think we would not go through the same? But the temptation here when we go through any struggle, especially if it's our fault, is to believe that God is punishing us. I am here to tell you right now, suffering is not God's punishment. There is a difference. This is on your sheet. There's a difference between punishment and discipline. And I like the word training better. Punishment is looking back. It is payment for wrongdoing. And if you've never heard this before, I'm here to tell you everything you have ever done wrong, Jesus went to the cross to pay that penalty. Your penalty is already paid. If you're struggling with cutting or suicide, thank you, Haley, for sharing that. You don't need to cut yourself. Jesus has already been cut for you. He has already paid the punishment. And you know what? Two people cannot pay the price for one crime. It's already paid. It's already paid. And if you haven't accepted Jesus' payment for that, today's your day. Today's the day for you to accept that Jesus has paid the penalty for your wrong. He's paid it in full. But there is discipline, and I think we need to hold fast to discipline. Discipline is training. It looks forward to the future. The purpose of discipline is to help us not make the same mistake, but I think it goes even further than that. It's to prepare us to be ready to experience and hold on to all the gifts that God has to define and refine us for the purposes for which we've been created for. And man, we know this. If you're a parent, you know that you are disciplining your children for the future. Okay, I've told you that Jaden, when she was two years old, that kid ate anything and everything that was in front of her face. It is literally, I deserve an award for keeping her alive. Like, for reals. It was the greatest accomplishment of my life. (laughs) I'm just saying. I mean, she's eaten slug bait. She's eaten her own poop. She ate seven rocks and pooped them out. She's like the gut of steel. And the other day, she just had food poisoning. I'm like, how can you have food poisoning? You ate Neosporin. I'm like, you know. She ate so many things, and one day I decided to try this thing where I was putting Tabasco sauce on her tongue. And I could get where she would think, my mom's punishing me. You're a bad girl. You shouldn't put stuff in your mouth. But that's not what I was doing. The purpose of me putting Tabasco sauce in her mouth was that she would get a bad taste every time she put a non-food item in her mouth so that her deep limbic system would start saying, that's not food. I'm not going to put it in my mouth. In fact, that is like our exact like motto I taught her to say. <laughs> I literally taught her to say, you could ask her at two and three. And she'd be like, that's not food. It doesn't go in my mouth. <laughs> because I wanted to prepare her for her future. And I knew if she ate something poisonous, there would be no future. And I think about the same thing with JL, my new daughter. And she's experienced abuse and negative punishment. And every time we try to train her, her first thought is, are you going to punish me? And I look at her and I say, we don't do punishment in this house. We do discipline. We do training because you have a purpose that God has for you. And you're going to be an amazing adult that lives out those purposes. And I'm going to train you for that. And if you know her, you know that that girl has no shut off for food. And so part of what we are training her in, like, I literally said no donut, knowing that I'm going to give her a donut half an hour later, because I'm like, if I could just grow that willpower a little longer, I know that she won't self-medicate with food when she's in her 30s. 
okay? So that's why God trains us. Discipline is the fruit of love. It's the fruit of love. It'd be so much easier for me to be like, yeah, eat that donut. But I'm thinking of our future, and God's thinking of our future. Hebrews 11, 7 through 11 says, endure hardships as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what, for what children are not disciplined? Wait, that doesn't make sense. Okay, for what children are not disciplined by their father? There we go. Okay, if you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you're not legitimate. Not true sons, not true daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us or mothers, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought was best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we might share in his holiness, his wholeness, his freedom. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, that's for sure, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. And so especially when we have sinned, we have to remember that God loves us. And I'm skipping ahead. That's number five. God loves us. In suffering, you have to understand God loves us. Don't you realize that when God allows the heat to be turned up, he does it because he wants to get rid of the pattern of sin. He wants to get rid of characteristics and flaws that you've been working so hard to hide so that nobody sees. But he's saying, why don't we stop hiding those? Why don't we just clean those up and get rid of them? Right? When we're at our workplace and all of a sudden Janice is being annoying and we just lose our junk on Janice. And we're embarrassed and we're exposed. We yelled at our children in the middle of Target and we're embarrassed and exposed. And you know what God is saying? Oh, yes, I'm so glad that came to the surface. Let's deal with that right now. Man, hopefully we can deal with it before they get hard again and I'm not able to just scoop that right off the surface. And I think the world is saying, oh, Christians are real people. And when we humble ourselves, not only does God get excited because he gets to heal us, but he, that ointment begins to come out to the world through brokenness. See, it's not through your perfection that God's going to heal the world. It's through your humility. Man, I just think that God wants to do some powerful things. I love, Charles Spurgeon says this, I've learned to embrace the waves that crash me into the rock of ages. Right? It's hard when you're fighting against the waves, and it's so exhausting. But what if you just went with them? What could God do? I think, number four, understand that suffering produces glory. What God wants to do in your suffering is beautiful. So beautiful. First Peter 1.7, Peter back again. Man, remember, I hope you get this picture of this guy that's been through it, and now he's teaching about suffering. These trials have come so that, that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, in glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. He compares our suffering to being refined by fire, to the refinement of gold by fire. See, gold, when it's in its hard state, right, you can see the impurities right in it. But when it's heated up to a certain temperature and it's liquefied, all those impurities rise to the surface and it's easy to scoop them out. And then what does the person do with it? They pour it into a mold and then it's prepared for its purposes. It's defined and refined. And the same thing is with us. We don't ever want to miss an opportunity where the heat is turned up. And maybe I'm a weirdo. Call me a weirdo. When things get weird in our household, ask Jude about it. He probably, this is probably number one hated thing about me. When things get turned up and he starts, words start flying, I'm like, Where's this coming from, Jude? What's God want to do in your life through this? 
my kids are like, no. But I'm like, this is the perfect opportunity. He's not hiding. He's not pretending. This is what's going on inside of him. And the same, I think, God thinks with us. Here it is, this opportunity. Don't miss it. And what do we do? We want to jump out of that pot. We want to get out of it. And you know what you're going to do? You don't just prolong suffering when you choose the wrong remedy. You prolong suffering when you don't cooperate with God in it. Every time you've said, oh, this is too hard, I'm going to quit this job. All right, I'm going to ghost this friend. You know you've all done it. We are great at cancel culture in America. Maybe the Lord's turning up the heat, and that Facebook friend is there so that he can deal with an anger issue, a pride issue, an insecurity issue, a lust issue, and God's turning up the heat. And man, we never do this as much as we do this with church. As soon as the heat turns up, oh, oh, that's the enemy at this church. Uh, I probably should go to another one. Or maybe it's God. Maybe God is turning up the heat in a safe place where you can scoop out that nastiness instead of jumping on to a new community and prolonging what God wants to do. See, God put you there to learn something, so lean into it. And maybe stop blaming someone and start saying, oh God, you put me here for a reason. Is there something you're trying to get rid of inside of me? Man, if, if we as Christians started doing that, I kind of think more people would want to come to church. Can I just be real? What's the number one reason people don't want to come to church? Because hypocrites are here. And what are hypocrites? People that don't own their junk. So there you go. Unshakable. I told you I was going to hit you below the belt today. Okay. Unshakable truths are branded in our hearts when we stay in the fire. So stay in the fire, friend. God's got good things for you. He's going to be refining and defining your purpose. And that's going to be a glorious thing that I want to be a part of. So I'm going to hit five and six. I already hit five. Understand God loves you. If you're a note taker, fill in that blank, right? God loves you in the middle of whatever kind of suffering you're going through, including your own uh, that you caused. <laughs> He's going to love you in that. Number six, understand that suffering is the key to promotion. There is no resurrection without death. In fact, a plant has to die in the ground for it to even produce life. That's the natural order of things. But we come to this crossroads, and this is on your notes. We're going to talk about God's desire versus Satan's desire. We come to this crossroads. What are we going to choose? Are we going to choose to surrender to this and let God do something in it? Or are we going to jump out of the fire and choose to do the same sin patterns, the same self-preservation patterns that we've done in the past? Because this is God's desire for us in suffering. He wants to strengthen your faith. He wants to build new faith muscles. He wants to teach you to be dependent on him. Did you know you have a belly button for a reason? Everybody touch your belly button for a minute. <laughs> Is that weird? Okay. You have a belly button for a reason because you could not self-create. You are a created being and you needed a mother. It indicates that we have a creator. God doesn't have a belly button because he is self-sufficient. And he wants us to learn to be dependent on him because he is the source. He has all the power and he wants us to have access to it. He wants us to lean into his heart, to let him show us his faithfulness in dark times. Because ultimately, and this is on your notes, he wants to soften your heart, not harden your heart. He wants to make you better, not bitter right? He wants to help that precious ointment that's healing to this world come out of you so that everyone around you gets healed, not just you. But Satan's desire is that he wants to weaken us through suffering. He wants to weaken your faith. He wants to break it down. He wants you to become self-sufficient. He wants you to plug in to your woundedness, to your resentment, to your bitterness, to your toxic thoughts. That's what he wants you to plug into. And he wants to build strongholds in your soul that harden your heart so that the fragrance of Christ can never be released. I'm telling you what, I'm not agreeing with the, the enemy at all because Satan wants to harden your heart. And we are never more dangerous when we stand, we are never more in danger than when we stand at the crossroads of suffering. And I, I hear you, if you're there right now, I just want you to know I have compassion. There's a vulnerable place to be. It's a hard place to be. And I know you feel that danger. There are two lions that you could allow loose in your heart and in your life. And that is, the lion that devours, which is a false lion, 
and that's Satan, or it's the lion of the tribe of Judah that delivers. He delivers. But he can only do that if we humble ourselves. See, if we humble ourselves, then God promotes us. Nowhere in the Bible do you see that God humbles you, that he creates a humble heart in you. No, we choose. Humility is a choice. I don't know if you've seen this before, but I've seen people who are humiliated who have never been humble. And I've met people that are humble but have never been humiliated because humble is a choice. And sometimes God will allow you to be humiliated to push you to the place of coming to your knees and confessing and repenting. First Peter 5, 6 through 9 says this. Man, Peter has some good things to say. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may do what? Lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he does what? Be alert and sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring looking for someone to resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. And as we just bring this to a close, we're going to have a reset moment where we allow God to do some good stuff because I don't think we should leave here without God doing some good things inside of us. I'll be honest, approaching here, the Holy Spirit said, I'm going to interrupt some people today. And I'm excited for you. Would you allow God to interrupt you today? Because I think this interruption might be the most valuable of your life. So number seven, understand and thank God for this, that suffering is temporary. It does have an, expression, an expiration date, but your cooperation with him is going to be what helps the suffering end faster. Your resistance can make it take longer. Your partnership with the Holy Spirit in your training is crucial. James 1 says it this way, Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith, sorry, it's not on the screen, or it is on the screen. You know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work so that you may be found mature and complete. I hate to say this, and I know this is hard to hear. There is no such thing as a mature Christian who hasn't gone through suffering and partnered with God in that. There's no skipping this process. There's no maturity without it. And Peter, 1 Peter 5, 10 through 11 says, and the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while with, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. As I bring this to the close, I just know that the last few years have been some of the hardest years some of you guys have faced. Some of us have all faced. Through COVID, the pandemic, let's just say the crazy politicalness, angry people, the ghosting, relationships have been more difficult than ever. There is brokenness in our world and there is suffering and in the church we've seen it so much if you haven't heard of the hillsong documentary and all the fallen pastors in the last few years and the nastiness that we've seen come out in church leadership you've been under a rock and i've wrestled with god why is your church so humiliated? How it must look to the rest of the world as we are image bearers. And God is reminding me, I don't discipline those I do not love. I put the church in the fire so that the dross and the ugliness will come to the surface so that I might wipe it away and she might arise to be the hope of the world that she is called to be. Don't despise his discipline. It's good, and it's good for us. Because what happens when that jar is broken is that ointment is released, and I want to challenge you to fight for that brokenness because there are people in your life that need the fragrance of Christ.
that they don't need the jar. They don't need your perfection. They need the fragrance of Christ and don't go your entire life where the people in your life only know the jar. They don't know the fragrance of Christ. It's not worth it. I don't think you'll think it's worth it. And for all that it's worth for me, I have been through a lot of suffering very early on in life. And it has taught me a lot. And it's hard to admit this sometimes. It was even hard for me when I was a teenager. I don't want to revel in the fact that my dad died. But the relationship that I have through that suffering with Christ is the most beautiful thing I own. It is the most precious thing about me. Sometimes I think about my cousins, and you don't know this part of the suffering that I went through, is to watch my cousins be continually abused by one of my uncles to the point of absolute, I mean, the worst things you could ever imagine. And I've asked God, why? He's like, look what I produce inside of you the compassion that you have for other people. And I look at the suffering that I go through and I can make it, it can make me bitter, it can make me better. And every individual I look into the eyes of and I can think of countless names of young women and men that have been molested, that I have been as a pastor to look at them and say, we're gonna protect you. We're gonna keep you safe and we care that you admitted this and we value you. All because of my cousin Maxine, and I could look at that and say suffering wasn't worth it, but it has produced so much good. Would you stand with me? Thanks again for listening to this message at Rivers Church. We'd love to have you subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already. To learn more about what's going on in the life of our church community, check us out at riverschurch.co. I pray that this week you would walk in the power and the presence of God. Thanks for joining us.